We're uh, continuing with number five of six in our series in the book of Judges entitled Crooked Instruments of Redemption. And this morning we're going to be talking about Samson. But our passage will uh, begin this morning for the seventh time in Judges saying this, and the people of Israel again did did what was evil in the sight of the Lord over and over and over. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, the opening lines of Charles Dickens's uh, Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. That does not describe the moral minefield that Steve has been picking his way through for the past four weeks in the book of Judges. It was not the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was not the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was not the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was not the season of light. It was the season of darkness. And it was not the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. There was nothing best in it. It was all worst. And at the end of next week, it's going to get even worser. It's a book of uh, moral messiness. And as a result of the messiness, moral mayhem. And if you think Ehud's 18-inch sword buried in the belly of a fat king until dung spilled out that Steve described so graphically for us a number of weeks ago. If you think that was pretty incredulous, the old saying, you ain't seen nothing yet, uh, Samson's probably going to blow us away today. And then the material next week is going to, um, well, let me just say that it might be a good idea if you brought some Pepto-Bismol with you because it's going to turn your stomach. It's that bad. The life of Samson, as probably some of you know, has been pretty lucrative for movie makers. I had no idea about this, but uh, 11 movies have been made about this. Uh, The first one back in 1914, obviously silent and pretty dull, probably, uh, to the last one being filmed right now as we speak in South Africa. Uh, It makes a great script, right? I... uh, Shaggy, long-haired muscle man chasing after bad women. Uh, A one-man army killing a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. A blind and taunted failure who is making one more heroic effort, pushing out two pillars, and literally bringing the house down while killing at least 3,000 people, including himself. It's exciting. It's colorful. It's colorful if not a bit weird. And by the way, it has always been easy to uh, scare Sunday school kids with, you don't want to be like Samson, do you? To which the kids always respond, and I can actually remember doing this when I was a kid, no. So is that what these four chapters are all about? Don't be like Samson. Uh, I don't think so. It's a lot deeper than that. 
and we'll get to that. But I, I, I want us to get the gist and flow of these four chapters. It's a, it's a lot of material, and I know some of it is familiar to you, but maybe not all of it. Um, Samson's a pretty famous guy, and probably most of all what we remember is the, the scene in Delilah's hair salon with uh, Samson getting it all cut off. But I want to make this real simple. What I've done is I've, I've pulled out key verses to go through to tell the story from beginning to end, leaving out the stuff that does not continue the, the narrative. And along the way, I'm going to drop in a few explanations of, of what's happening culturally or, or some other comments along the way. So there'll be, you, you, probably you don't want to use your Bible this morning. You want to follow on the screen because we'll be jumping around and Aaron is, Aaron is going to try to keep up with me back there to keep the right scriptures coming up. So we begin at Judges chapter 3, verse 1, 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Now, the mention of, of a barren woman in Scripture shouts, pay attention. Something big is about to happen. It, it's kind of like the New Testament. Verily, verily, I say unto you, don't miss this, because when there's a barren woman involved, God is on the move doing something. And then it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her. Now, the angel of the Lord, I, I almost don't want to put this in here because you're going to have questions and I don't have time to explain it. But the angel of the Lord here is Jesus in his, his pre-incarnate form. And we can show that from the scripture. In fact, we can show this from chapter 13 in Judges. But he had appeared to Abraham and at the latest time had, had appeared to Gideon. And now he's appearing to Samson. And I think God is making a point here because even the announcement of John the Baptist got only an angel, Gabriel. But Samson's announcement gets the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So I think God is saying, hey, this is a big deal right now. He says, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, the, the word for Nazarite is, is Nazir, which just means to be separated, to be consecrated. Um, and the Nazarite vow, which you can read about in Numbers chapter 6, uh, had five features. First of all, it's voluntary normally, but we'll notice here it's not voluntary for Samson. It can be done by either a man or a woman. Um, it has a specific time frame. Again, Samson's is different. It's for life. It, it doesn't begin and end within his life. It has specific requirements for Samson. It is to be no drink wine, no cut hair, no touch dead body. And if you don't do that, you're fine. You're a Nazarite. And its conclusion uh, is uh, always uh, ended with a sacrifice being offered. In exchange for these limitations, God is going to give Samson incredible, exceptional strength. And we've heard that so often that we tend to not realize what kind of strength that actually was. And we'll see that. And then the word says, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So it, it looks like God's not after a complete defeat here of the enemy. Evidently, God's plan is for him to just keep the Philistines off balance until he would eventually raise up another guy to lead Israel in defeating the Philistines totally, which does happen in the, early in the book of, of 1 Samuel. So it's kind of like God's going to use Samson for a 20-year period here as sort of a diversionary tactic of the, for, for the Philistines. And if that's true, and many scholars believe it is, he was incredibly successful because for the 20 years of his reign as a judge, there is no record of the Philistines 
coming against the nation of Israel in any mean way. Now, for when they conquered Israel here, there's 20 years before Samson becomes the judge. So for these 20 years, it was a mess for the Israelites. I mean, they conquered the whole nation, the Philistines, and they, they caused all kinds of havoc. Well, once Samson came on the, on the scene and really put the... I don't know if it was the fear of God or the fear of Samson in the Philistines, but we don't read anything about them coming against the Israelites after that time. So he was successful as being a diversionary tactic. But you can, can you imagine the Philistines' frustration? They had been able to defeat the entire country of Israel back here, and now they couldn't dispose of this one pre-incarnate form of the Hulk. They just couldn't do it. One guy. Scripture goes on, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtiel. Now, last week, Steve said that um, about Gideon that the, the Lord actually spoke to Gideon more than any other judge, which is true. But the idea of the spirit of the Lord coming upon a judge is spoken, I think it's five times to Samson. Not that many to Gideon or any of the other judges. So he has that actually said about him that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and began to fill him. And so the spirit of the Lord is really big in Samson's life, which is, you know, you, the things you think about Samson, Samson, you just, you, you wonder. Now, the spirit of the Lord begins to move in him after 20 years of suffering under Philist, uh, the Philistia's uh, cruelty. The word goes on, Samson went down to Timnah and saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife, for she is right in my eyes. Now we're not going to say much about that this morning because next week we're going to talk about the eyes, what's right in our eyes, God's eyes, that sort of thing, and we'll actually come back to this. But his parents put up a little fuss about this gal because uh, she's a Philistine, she's not an Israelite. But eventually, the three of them went to see the girl, and on the way, this lion comes out and attacks Samson. Now, evidently, his parents are ahead of him or behind him because there's no mention that they're there. But he grabs this lion barehandedly, he rips it apart, and then he throws the, the uh, backbone and the ribs tied to it just to the side of the road, and he just goes on as if, you know, just flick the fly off. I mean... God's working in and with this guy. Just picture that happening. We, some of us have heard it so much that, oh, yeah, he slew a lion. I mean, that's huge. Well, they saw the girl. Then they went back home and later returned to the girl and they got married. Well, Samson had 30 groomsmen and he had promised each of the groomsmen that if they could figure out a riddle he was going to tell them, that he would give them each a mini wardrobe from Ralph Lauren. So they tried and tried and, and couldn't do it. And finally, they went to his new wife and weaseled the answer to the riddle out of her. And she went to the guys, told them they solved the riddle. And when Samson heard about that, next passage. The spirit of the Lord, there it is again, rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So this, this really ticked him off. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So this is not going well for Samson at this point. Well, after Samson cooled down, he went back to be with his wife and he found that she had been given to his best man. 
And he responded with some really pretty creative revenge. He caught 300 foxes. Now, just stop a minute. <laughs> he caught 300 foxes. I mean, either this guy is an incredible trapper or a phenomenal Olympian or whatever, but he, ca he catches these foxes, and he puts them in pairs, and he ties their tails together, and he puts a torch on the tails and lights the torch, and he turns these 300, 150 pairs loose to go into the, into the harvest of the season, the last right at the last harvest, and they go in and, and they put on fire all of the stacked harvest, the stacked grain that they had already harvested, and some that had not yet been harvested was in the field. They went out there and, and burned all that up as well. Well, you, you can imagine that Philistines didn't take too kindly to that. So it's not too long after that that 3,000 Philistines, Philistines then come down to Israel where Samson has now retreated, and they, they ask some of the Israelites to surrender Samson to them. And he allows himself to be bound and handed over. But he said to the Israelites this, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. See, they were scared. They had been under the Philistine rule for 20 years, and it had been pretty bad. They didn't want to do anything to irritate them anymore, so they're going to do what the Philistines say. Hey, give me, give me Samson. Okay, we'll, we'll turn him over. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Now just stop again. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've read this story since I was a kid, and you're, oh yeah, he killed 1,000 guys with, with a jawbone of back in the King James, jawbone of an ass. Uh, a thousand of them with this jawbone. Can you picture this thing going on? I mean, let's try to put it in maybe some of our terms. Um, how about this? Samson takes a handoff from Matt Ryan at the Falcons' five-yard line and runs 95 yards for a touchdown through all 832 NFL defensive players from all of the other teams suited up to stop him. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Might have made the difference last year in that last game. <laughs> it's incredible. Well, this single man war started the 20-year reign of Samson. This is at the very beginning, uh, over, the, over the Philistines. Then we don't hear anything for 18 years. So we hear this at the very beginning, and then the rest of the story we hear the last year. So there's 18 years in between, and we hear nothing of the Philistines coming and doing anything against Israel. There's just nothing recorded, because they, uh, they're just in fear of this guy. Uh, can you imagine? I mean, you meet a guy like this. Wendy. I know her. She just wanted to say she loved me. That's all. I mean, incredible guy. So nothing for 18 years. Um, and then he goes up to another Philistine city, and he gets mixed up with a prostitute. Uh, the men of the town heard he was there. You know, was he enticed up there by her? We don't know about that, but could have been. 
and they planned to capture him in the morning when, when he left. But scripture says at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Guys, that's 40 miles with this gate and all of the bars on his shoulders. The Philistines would not have missed the symbolism of that. When your gate is gone in the ancient world, your city's done. It was a protection for the city. Scripture goes on. After this, he loved a woman. This is number three. All nine Israelites. In the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Delilah. We all know her. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. She's going to become rich overnight. As many of you know, Samson and Delilah sort of played cat and mouse for a while. But she finally got the truth out of him. And it was the hair. It's all about the hair. Now, I know you have a picture of what this guy looks like. This... This is not a 1960s hippie look. How many of you lived through the 60s? Boy, fewer and fewer every year. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> and you probably did it as children. I did it as an adult. Stringy, straggly looking like it hadn't seen shampoo since birth. I mean, we, we were ministering on a campus at that time, and that's what it was like. Uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't Samson. It was uh, neatly arranged in seven locks or braids uh, and probably looked pretty cool on top of that Hulk-like physique. Scripture now says she made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. No spirit of God this time. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Let's picture this sight, pitiful. Uh, blind, bald, a dejected hulk of a man grinding like an animal around circle after circle, probably stepping in his own manure. But this gave him time to think. Time to think about what a fool he had been. Time to think of his lusting eyes that had led him from one sin to another. Time to think that he now had empty sockets where those eyes once had been. Time to think that now all he could do was walk the same small circle, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, grinding. And it gave him plenty of time to meditate on God's purpose for his life and what a mess he had made of it. And it gave him time to repent. Question is, was it too late? We get, I think, a hint of an answer to that in a little verse tucked away at the end of a paragraph. It says, but the hair of his head began to grow again. Now, obviously, it would begin to grow again naturally, right? Some scholars actually think that the wording of the Hebrew here allows for sort of a miraculous, rapid growth 
back to where it had been before he got suckered by Delilah. You see, it's placed between his humiliation, walking in circles, grinding like an animal, and his last heroic act down here where he actually fulfilled his mission. It seems to symbolize repentance, uh, a renewal of his Nazarite vow, which, which men were able to do. And more important, it seems to indicate God's acceptance of that from him. So to celebrate the capture of Samson, the Philistine lords called a feast to offer a Thanksgiving sacrifice to their god Dagon. And when they were all pretty looped as they were celebrating, they brought Samson out for entertainment. Now, we don't know whether they wanted him to come out and dance for them or, 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 or just use him as the recipient of verbal and physical abuse. We, we don't know. We're not told. But remembering that he's blind, in chains, and weak, it, it may have been enough entertainment just to keep pushing him around and watching him grope and blunder from pillar to post. Because remember, here's this guy who just has terrorized them. One man against armies. And now they've got him. Well, eventually they set him between two pillars, probably to be better seen by the crowd. But little did they know that they were playing right into God's hands. Right into God's hands. Scripture says, And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So now God's got the uh, Philistine royal family. He's got the general staff. He's got the five lords of the five major cities. People from all over the country, and 3,000 of them on the roof, and this roof probably had windows or openings in it so they could be looking down to see the entertainment down below in the, in the courtyard where they, had, where they had Samson. But more importantly, God's got... A repentant, wayward judge, ready to fulfill his purpose for God. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, you read that and it sounds just a little bit of self-centered and selfish. Let's just get back at them because of what they did to me. Uh, but it's really in keeping with Samson always trying to draw the rage of the Philistines to himself and not to God or to the Israelites. Remember back when they came down for him and the Israelites had him, he could have said, hey, why don't you go out and fight those guys? But he didn't. He, he got them out of the back. Okay, bind me and send me out to them. And we'll take care of it that way. That's just the way he functioned as a judge. C.S. Lewis says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. And in the end, this blind, humiliated, and shackled servant of God, walking in circles, grinding grain, repented, and said in his heart, Thy will be done. And it was. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and I'm guessing they could have seen the muscles bulge and quiver. And, and at that moment, he was filled with more of the power of God than probably ever before. And the pillars began to push apart, and then like a, a massive earthquake, the entire viewing stand collapsed. 
Scripture says, And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. How ironic, you know? At a celebration to honor his capture, he kills more people than he had in all the previous years. But that disaster so disrupted the Philistine nation that Israel, just a few years later, was able to throw off that yoke of oppression led by Samuel at the Battle of Mizpah. And the story ends, then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. The natural question came to me, why is this in the word of the Lord? And why do we say readily to this strangeness, thanks be to God? I think there are some of us who like Samson because he's a sinner. In fact, he's, he's not only a sinner, he's, he's, he's kind of a worse sinner than me. So if God can love and use him, well, then there's hope for me. But that begs a question. Did God put this in the scriptures just to sort of repair my deflated self-esteem? To make me feel better about myself? I'm better than him, so I don't think so. Hebrews 11 has been called the Faith Hall of Fame. And it's a shocker. Uh, you read it, and you find the expected biblical heroes. You, you find Abraham, you find Joseph, you find Moses, you find David. Um, and then you read this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson. And then these words, who through faith conquered kingdoms. And then it goes on and says more. Why is Samson in that list with no censure, only commendation? After the stuff we've read about him. I think there's one reason and one reason only. And that is to show the faithfulness, not of Samson, or even Abraham in the list. Not to show the, the faith, faithfulness of, of Abraham. It's to show the faithfulness of God. You see, all of these stories are really not about men. They're about God being faithful to men. When we study the men and the women of, of, of the Bible, we, we study them to find God in the midst of their messy times and in the midst of their joyous times. Now I'm going to make a statement that I'm going to have to explain. The Bible is all about expected results coming through unexpected means. In other words, we expect something to happen, but then it comes through unexpected, uh, unexpected means. By the time we get to Samson in the book of Judges, we're expecting God to redeem Israel again. Because we've not only read, Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, but also, and God again raised up a judge to save Israel. And every time we've read that, he did it. He saved them every time. But then we get into this story and we begin to think, there's no way he's going to save Israel through this guy. He's too messy. He's too messed up. But God does. Because that's just who God is.
Think about the last two judges that we've met. Gideon, that Steve talked about for two weeks. Uh, Gideon didn't blow it along the way. It was good. But he finished badly, as Steve said last week. Samson blew it all along the way. But he finished well. But God teaches us the same thing for both guys. Totally different scenarios. And it's like this. I will be faithful to my people, and I will use whoever I have to work with, and will work with, through, or around their failures. That's what God does. Steve said something a few weeks ago about God and his people that was really, really powerful to me. And I want to apply it to a, a different scene here. Uh, I want to put it into words that God might say. I, I do not work with them this way because in the end, they really are good guys. But in the end, even though they are not good guys, they're mine. God has his people. And he's faithful to his people. Regardless of what they do. And if we're honest, we have to admit that about ourselves as well. When I, when I hear how God uses me sometimes in other people's lives, I, I literally physically actually just shake my head sometimes. And then internally, I just fall on my face before the grace of God and the God of grace. I know myself too well to honestly take any credit for whatever good is accomplished in someone else's life through me. And I'm telling you this morning, folks, that is not false modesty. That is simply true reality. The great 19th century, very godly Scottish preacher, Alexander White, was approached one day by a woman who showered him with all kinds of praise. And White knew that she was, she was really sincere. This wasn't flattery. It was, she was very sincere. But he also knew that the, the applause that she was heaping on him... Uh, was not his to receive, nor was it an accurate perception of who he knew himself to be in his flesh apart from Christ. So he looked at the woman and he said, Madam, if you, know, if you knew the man I really am, you would spit in my face. Again, that's not false modesty on his part. That's, that's not admitting to hypocrisy. It's just reality. And I really believe that knowing that and believing that can carry a huge power for your and my souls. Let's face it, we're, we're, we're not worthy of being used by God. We're just not. It's not like there's this huge scale of worthiness. And then we begin thinking about people and we think, okay, oh, 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 Billy Graham, okay. You know, not here, but, you know, he, he's, he's up there. And then... And then there's Matt. Well, you know, Matt's not, he's not up there with Billy Graham yet. He's got a shot, but, you know, so he's, he's down here. And, and then there's Art. Well, he's, you know, he's a little above Matt because, <laughs> but it's only because he's old. Because what do old guys have to do but sit around and try to be saintly, you know? Here's the truth. If there's a scale of worthiness... We are all crowded down here at the bottom. Fighting for a lower spot. With no measurable differences between us compared to the holiness required of us. There's just no difference. 
Spurgeon said, when you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, you have hit the truth. You see, being used by God does not depend on worthiness. If it did, we would be earning something from God, and that, beloved, is another gospel, which Paul says in Galatians is to be accursed. And I can't go into detail on this, but um, that's another gospel that I tried to live out for way too long. You know, if I could just do that, I was a bad boy here, but if I, if I can be a good boy here, well, then that will help a little bit, maybe offset some of that. And so then maybe, you know, put two or three good boy things together and maybe I could just creep up that worthiness scale just a little bit. I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. Um, Some of you may be trying to live that way right now. You may feel like you're right there with Samson in the prison grinding like a dumb ox. You may feel like you've made a total mess of your life. You may feel like God's black book is just full up with sins from your life and that you have waited too long to submit to God and his will for your life. You may feel it's just too late. I have the best news in the world for you. The God of Samson has no such black book. What he has are open arms and a loving, tender heart full of mercy waiting for you to make the commitment to repent and to say, thy will be done. Well, you say, if that's true, uh, man, that's good news. I can just kind of live like I want, and God will overlook my Samson-like behavior as long as I come back and repent and, you know, do that again, and I can... Paul, shall we sin that grace shall abound? God forbid, he says. With as much kindness but as much intensity as I can muster... I want to say to you, if that's what you think, that, oh, well, because the grace of God, I can get away with, and I just come back and repent, and I'm fine. I want to say to you that you don't understand God, and you don't understand grace, and you don't understand the gospel at all. When we see a dude like Samson and see God hanging with him through all of his crud and then realize that God does the same thing with you and with me, we ought to be motivated to do nothing other than fall on our face in repentance. Because if he is that patient and if he is that merciful and that loving and that compassionate, and if I grasp that, then all I want to do is say, thy will be done. So do you want to be like Samson? No, you don't want to be like Samson. Again, do you want to be like Samson? Yes. You want to be like Samson. You don't want to sin your way through your calling like Samson to be God's man or God's woman. But when you do sin, and you do and will, you want to repent like Samson and say, thy will be done. Because that's the gospel over and over and over again. 
So, uh, last question. Why was God faithful to Samson, and why will he be faithful to you and me? And I think it's one word. It's the word redemption. That's what the entire Bible is about. From the time we messed up God's perfect creation uh, through the skin of our forefather Adam, God has been about redeeming his people. From that moment on, at the end of that fall chapter, God says, I'm going to bring a redeemer. Then Noah and Abraham and the Israelites out of Egypt redeemed. And seven times here in the book of Judges, he redeems his people. And later, brings them out of captivity, redeems and brings them back again. All these redemptions going on. What are they for? Well, they're redemptions that point to the the, the imperfect and shadowy way that they were redemptions by God for his people. They didn't get the job done ultimately until that redemption of all redemptions came along and the Son of God became man and went to the cross. And the final redemption took place. In that long line of an unbroken theme in God's story, this fiasco of Samson is, is not about hair. It's not about don't be like Samson or even uh, be like Samson who in the end left it all out on the field. See, no story in the Bible is just about a person. Every story is about God and about man and how God deals with the fallenness of man in a redemption that only he can pull off. Now, do I believe we can pull principles from stories? Yeah, we can get principles, but that's, that's just that much of it. Trevor Wax says this. You cannot just take these heroes of the faith and only use the moral examples and the principles from these stories. They are telling a bigger story. That's why week after week, we always end up at the gospel and the table that proclaims and remembers the gospel. We want all of us to be informed by God's perspective on history and the world, by his story, by his narrative. It's got four parts. There was a creation. Everything was beautiful and perfect. And then man's here, and he's, we just messed up all of this stuff. So God steps in at that moment and begins a redemptive process that's still going on, but it went on from, from that moment on. Jesus Christ redeemed. Now he's still redeeming us. Talk about that in a minute. And then eventually he's going to be restored back to this creation. That's the story of history. That is... That is what history is about. It's about God's redemption of the world and of people. And, and if you and I don't hear that week after week after week, we're not going to be formed by that. Because the other six days, we get bombarded by another theory. And that is that history is all about us. And it isn't. It's all about God. And him redeeming us. I desperately need that, that meta story of God just, just pouring into my life. If, if I don't, I'm simply going to go to the Bible and I'm going to look for a hero. Then I'm going to look for the three things that made him a hero. And I'm going to try to do those things and become like him. Or I'm not going to do the things he did because he's not a hero. That means I'm going to the Bible just to get stuff for myself. And I don't go looking for Jesus Christ at all. I just look for some kind of a, some kind of a way, some kind of a formula to become a better person or to become a better Christian or something like that. When in the end, it's all about Jesus. And let's be clear. Those of us who are believers in here this morning, and that's most of you, I know, not all of you, um, we've been redeemed. There's a redemption that's taken place for us. We've been redeemed from the penalty of our sin. It's done. We're not going to have to pay the penalty for our sin. But you and I need to be being redeemed every moment of every day from the power of sin in our lives. So there is a redemption that is still going on even after our salvation, after becoming a Christian. And that's why we say over and over again here that we've just got to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves day after day after day, not to avoid the penalty of sin, but to gain victory over the power of sin.
And every one of these many redemptions along the way by God, through all of these different means and people, they all showed that the redemptions so far until Christ were insufficient. They didn't get it done. And each one shouted out, we've got to have a better, bigger redeemer. And they all pointed to Jesus and his perfect work of redemption. Even the record of this guy we call Samson. Jonathan Aiken explained his approach to Samson this way. When you start reading stories like Samson, you will see this is the savior of Israel who is being betrayed for silver by one who is close to him with a kiss. It's Delilah. Then he's arrested, mocked, and gains a greater victory through his death than he did in his life. You should read that and say, that sounds familiar. See, Samson's more than just a guy to be like or not be like. He's a signpost. He's a pointer. He and others like him are, are signposts pointing to the redemption to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Ed, Ed Clooney says this, the historical narratives of the Old Testament demonstrate types of the work of Christ. Like Jesus, Samson shows how God can bring judgment on the enemies of his people through one man equipped by the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus, Samson was bound by his own people and handed over to the oppressors. Like Jesus, Samson was mocked and made the sport of his captors. Like Jesus, Samson willingly gave up his life. Like Jesus, Samson in his death brought a deliverance that exceeded the deliverances of his life. But unlike Jesus, these are my words now, but unlike Jesus, Samson re Samson's redemption was local. It wasn't global. It, it was temporary, not eternal. It brought physical freedom, but not spiritual freedom. And it brought his death, but not a resurrection. During a discussion on Christ-centered preaching uh, one time, Jonathan Aiken uh, talked about the children's series uh, called Encyclopedia Brown. I was not familiar with that, but some of you, I, I think, are. He says this, these stories focused on a fifth grader who had his own detective agency and solved mysteries. You've got to flip to the back of the book after you've read the book to see how he solved each mystery. And Aiken says, I was never smart enough to figure out ahead of time myself, so I'd flip to the back and read it. I would then go to the beginning and read the story again. The clues were so clear once I knew the end of the story. We know the end of the story. It's redemption of God through Jesus Christ. And it's redemption of a faithful God through Jesus Christ of us. Now, I, I talked earlier about a, a scale of worthiness where we're all congregated here at the bottom. What I didn't emphasize was that where we all are is based on our own worthiness. But there's another worthiness that changes all the rules. It's the worthiness of the second Adam who undid what the first Adam did, who is Jesus Christ. And his worthiness explodes out the top of the scale. But he's not there alone exploding out the top. He's carried a whole host of folks with him, folks who have said this, my worthiness is worthless. Yours is immeasurable. I want yours, not mine. And he says, it's yours. Join me. And because of that, when God looks for you, he finds you not in that mass of people all lumped here at the bottom of this scale of worthiness. He finds you up here because of an incredible biblical prepositional phrase. 
He sees you in Christ. He sees you exploding out of the top of that worthiness scale, not because you are you, but because you are you now all wrapped up in the skin of his perfect son, Jesus. You see, he has determined that when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was resurrected, you were resurrected. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, you ascended with him. That's what it means to be in Christ. Everything that's his is yours and mine. Uh, we're co-heirs. We're co-heirs with Jesus of everything that the Father has for Jesus. I mean, that, that should blow our minds. That is God's faithfulness to us. That is God's redemption of us. When Samson stretched out his arms and pushed those two pillars, he brought death to thousands. When Jesus stretched out his arms this way, he brought life to millions, maybe even billions, including you if you have placed your faith in him. And that is what we carry away from this table every week, hope. Hope only because we have a faithful redeemer. If you're like me, you bring a different person in your skin to this table each week. Uh, there are weeks when uh, you and I know I come to this table and I'm feeling so intimate with God at that point and I feel so loved and grateful and, and I feel like I'm just living with the, the words right on, on my lips continuously, thy will be done. And then there are weeks when I come to the table and I almost feel it's sacrilegious to come and receive these sacred elements. That's what this table is for. It's for rejoicing and for repentance. And because he's a faithful redeemer, he'll accept you either way. You and I are incapable of doing anything to cause his posture behind this table as he serves you week after week. You and I are incapable of doing anything to cause his posture to go from this to this. Even if you walked into this cafeteria this morning with no relationship to God, if your heart has been moved by his Holy Spirit to reach out to him this morning and to accept his redemption of you, if you've done that this morning, this table is for you to approach in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that your whole word points to Jesus Christ and to that ultimate redemption that you so sacrificially but so perfectly gave for us. Thank you that as we look deeper into some of these stories of the Old Testament, which for us have been somewhat kind of like entertainment or, uh, yeah, entertainment, that there's so much more behind these, not in great detail, but in the broad scope, 
all of these things point ahead to say, watch, look, there's, there, there has to be something better coming. There has to be a redemption that is final coming. And sure enough, it came. Thank you for your faithful redemption of us through your son, Jesus. Now bless us as we remember that at this table. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you're a child of God or this morning are in the process of becoming a child of God, this table is for you. Come and uh, repent or uh, rejoice wherever you are this morning.